you guys in here um romans 12 and and we've had 11 chapters of just tons of theology so many things um the indicatives before the imperatives we've often talked about and now we're getting to to some imperatives in fact next week who it is about all imperatives lord willing from um, really verse 9 to 21, but, but even this week, we started to just get in on some practical things, and starting in chapter 12, um, we see these first two verses sort of set in a, uh, maybe a thesis statement, if you will, or the main idea of the whole rest of the, um, of just the, this incredible, brilliant book, and so, um, a lot to look at today. Wow. Could you read Grant... Um, for us, chapter 12, maybe go back to chapter 11 because it's too good to, to miss out on verse 33 and 36, just reminding us of the doxology and where we came. And then our good friend Josh is going to retroactively go back to verse 33 through 36 because he had a semi-excused absence last week that now he is uh, um, going to give us a, a little rundown on that. But Josh, how about praying for us and going to work? After uh, Grant reads. Do you want to read 12, 1 to 8, or the whole chapter? Yeah, just go to 1 to 8. Maybe okay. start in 33 from last week. <clears throat> Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by... The grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Father, thank you for the chance to look into this section of Romans. pray that as we dive into the practical that our lives would be marked and we would become uh, more conformed to the image of Christ. pray that you be with the other classes today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think last week I missed out on some of the fun, but I wanted to at least mention this about Scott. I know you guys talked about Scott a good bit, mm -hmm. and um, just been thinking about this verse. Every time I hear him talk at the Thursday night and when he gave um, that wonderful 12 or 14 minutes at Liliana's funeral, this verse has been in my mind uh, describing Scott, but it comes from Hebrews 13, 7. 
And it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And I just can't help but think of how Scott has been such an exemplar of the faith and always had such a deep trust in God. And God has been his source of strength and comfort and hope in this immense trial. And um, how amazing it is that we have somebody like Scott to try and imitate their faith, you know, a living, breathing example of a, uh, a worthy saint as he's being conformed to the image of Christ, and we can go to him and consider his way of life, and I just can't stop thinking about that, and how grateful I am for Scott and his life, and how he has looked to God for his hope and joy. Uh, but then also 11:33 to 36, kind of Paul's uh, crescendo of praise. And I don't have much here, but um, you know, you get to the end of this pretty difficult section in Romans 9 through 11, and Paul reaches this high point. It's it's like a volcanic eruption of wonder and marvel. And I think one thing is clear is that God is supreme, and there is no one like our God. He is totally and altogether holy and deserving of praise. There is no one like him. No one can give him counsel. His knowledge is far surpassing anything that any human could ever fathom. And he is ultimately worthy of our praise. And I thought you guys did such a great job with it last week, but I wanted to throw that in there. <clears throat> yeah. We go and there, there, remember that. When we... That it's 30... Four that got me more again this week, um, and Josh, you have gone to, to school to be a good counselor, and for those who know my Lord, or who has been his counselor, that's the, the great thing is that we really should be free from any sort of complaining or any sort of uh, counseling God, which I think we do when we are disagreeing with whatever's happening in life. The Lord has set us up perfectly all day long, every day from Romans 8, we know with whatever it is, whatever obstacle, whatever what Scott has gone through, perfectly designed to sanctify us. And so it's not whine or complain, and I'm the worst at doing this, so it's, this is coming, coming back to be very convicting, to not whine or complain about what God is orchestrating, because it's perfect, and we know that. And because of that, that gives us such security and such joy, and we can go with live with it, uh, a reckless abandon for His glory. I think um, not worrying that the the, the, the wrong thing's going to happen because He's sovereign in that, and uh, and I think that's what's given Scott such a great um, uh, insights and wisdom and attitude concerning what he's gone through is just his his great trust that God's in control. You know, one and two, they bring us quite a quite a way to start here, Josh. Quite a way to start, yeah. So when we get to Romans 12, there is a stark transition, and we're moving more into the practical, but that not, that's not to say that um, verse or chapters 1 through 11 are not practical. Uh, they exist together. We know that doctrine is very practical, but the practical here also rests on the doctrine from chapters 1 through 11. And uh, so everything that we've looked at, justification and sanctification and 
uh, election and final salvation. All of that doctrine forms the foundation of the duties that we'll look at here today and throughout the rest of the letter in coming weeks. And so we know that ideas have consequences, and we could almost think about chapter 12 as the consequences of how we are to live in light of chapters 1 through 11. And of course we see the very familiar paradigm of the indicatives and the imperatives at work here, uh, what Christ has done and then what we are to do in light of that, how we are to live. Um, you see that throughout many of Paul's letters. Uh, here in Romans we see it, of course, Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, you see it, and then the application in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Uh, in Ephesians, Paul spends some time working through different relationships, and uh, you remember Chapter 5, dealing with husbands and wives, and then children and parents, and then bond servants and their masters. Similarly, in Romans, we have different relationships being uh, applied, relationships with one another in the church and how we're to use our gifts. And then our relationship with the state will pick up in chapter 13. Um, our relationships with others in the church, with the weaker and the stronger brother. Now we'll pick up in chapter 14. And then uh, our relationship with the evildoers of this world and enemies uh, later on. And so we have sanctification applied not only individually, but how we are to act and conduct ourselves corporately in the church. But here in 12, 1 and 2, we have a comprehensive statement, I think, on the New Testament view of sanctification. And... Um, I'll just read it, and we can start working through it here. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And one of the commentators pointed this out, and I thought it was worth looking back at, but you'll remember in Romans 1, the degenerate mind is characterized by their corrupt thinking and their foolish worship. Doug Moose says that the downward spiral of foolish worship and corrupt minds now finds its reversal in the Christian's reasonable worship and renewed mind. And I thought that was really neat. So <clears throat> let's just go ahead and dive in here to these two verses. Paul's appeal really here is to present the body as a sacrifice. And this sacrifice is not something that happens in the temple, uh, but in our lives, in our work, in our businesses, and in our homes. And then the description there of living, holy, and acceptable describe this sacrifice. That's not a one-time thing, but a lifetime of service. And then our sacrificial worship is um, to be motivated by the mercies of God. You see, Paul makes his appeal by the mercies of God. He wants that to be in view as we live these sacrificial lives of service. And I think that the mercies of God is simply an awareness of the greatness of the mercy of God that 
sweeps over our thinking. When we're thinking and contemplating the mercies of God, it will motivate us to this kind of worship. And I, I think I'll just go ahead and read this example from John Newton, who, instead of trying to explain this, I think seeing at least a brief story of his life will illustrate this a little bit better. But you're all familiar with John Newton, how he was a slave trader, how he was wanting to go off and live on the open seas and live this uh, life of flagrant sin. He said in his autobiography that his reason for going was that he might sin his fill. And, um, of course, eventually, in an ironic case, he fell into the hands of an African slave trader's wife and was forced to eat his food off the floor like a dog and was very sick and emaciated and continued in this slave trade for some time. Uh, but in um, one night he was out at sea and there was a great storm that came up and um, his one of his biographers said, God brought to Newton's mind verses that he had learned from his mother as a child and they led to his conversion. And when the ship survived the storm and the sailors were again in England, Newton left the slave trade, studied for the Christian ministry, and finally became a great preacher. And uh, James Boyce asked, what was Newton's motivation? It was a profound awareness of the grace and mercy of God toward him, a wretched sinner. And you're familiar with his um, famous um, hymn that we sing frequently, Amazing Grace, and the words read like this, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And John's Newton, John Newton's entire life was characterized by the mercy of God that was shown to him, not only sparing him that day on the open seas, but in revealing the grace of God to him. And um, Newton said on his deathbed, I can remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. So I think that should be, at least when we think about this life of sacrificial service, where our motivation for that is the mercy of God. Maybe I'll just pause there. You guys want to throw in anything? Do you got again? I don't think I have anything. There's some, um, it's interesting. He's so strong in this. Josh, I, I appreciate what you say. I some of the commentators said, I appeal to you, I urge you, I implore you. Like, this isn't an optional deal, right? We're not optional in our, like, man, am I going to think about God's mercies or not today? We we think about them, and then I love the way you said it, Josh, then that motivates us. And I think it really motivates us. In fact, um, Mark was just uh, helping um, a couple from our church that's going to get married and, um, and it was just using that even in marriage to say, if I always remember how merciful I've been, God's been to me, then how can I not be merciful to Amy? And that's just such good in all of, in all of life. I think that's great. And you see, he just came from so many, um, mercy is such a big thing in 9 to 11. And I, I want us just to go back a little bit. 9, 16, look at this. He has... Talked about God's mercy here, uh, and so in chapter 12, 1 to 2, in view of that mercy, will you 9, 16, um, so then, 
It depends, and we're talking about salvation here, not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. Look at 23, 923, and, and uh, you know, this is just a, a, a small buffet of a lot of these. Um, maybe starting 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power, uh, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, that's the unbeliever, in order to make known the riches of the glory of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared um, beforehand for glory. Look at 1130, and this is just a couple weeks ago we looked at these. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, now you have received mercy. Because of their disobedience. Remember, the, and we're going to come to this in, in verse 3. But the, as Gentiles, we weren't supposed to, or they weren't supposed to be all uh, kind of hoity-toity and proud about the fact that they, they have salvation. No, that's, it was all because of God's mercy that they did that. And it wasn't supposed to be a thing where they say, oh, well, now the Jews are, are down. And, and we, I think... Even the way he starts, well, let me read 32 and then come back to that. 32, also about mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So it's in view of God's mercy. That's just going to be huge. And this week, probably within the next hour, we're going to need to remember that. Right? It's not optional. He's urging us to do it. He is saying that is, it's, it's an urgent thing that we view uh, God's mercy, because then we will be able to present our bodies as living sacrifices. I love Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, right? We're not called to do that. We're called to be living sacrifices. This is every day. I know how many times we, someone has said, well, I would die for my wife, let's say, or for my kids. or I think we would, but I think it's harder sometimes to live for them, to be living sacrifices to day in. And day out, say, this is because of God's mercy, we can do these things. This what he's imploring us um, to do. Grace and mercy motivate godly actions. I love MacArthur said the most compelling motivation. And I thought about this. I think it's true. See if this isn't true. The most compelling motivation for faithful, obedient living should not be the threat of discipline or the loss of reward, but overflowing and unceasing gratitude for the marvelous mercies of God. And so it's talking then about our bodies, that we are to present our body as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, just our whole, um, our whole being. And he's talking here, and uh, one of the commentators said it's not by accident. Anything in Scripture is purposely there. Therefore, brothers, he's talking now to the Jew and to the Gentile, right? They both have this beef against each other, it seems, especially you see in chapter 2, and when we get, when we get to verse 3, we'll see in chapter 2, remember, the Jews were all, oh, they were hypocritical and they were judgmental against the Gentiles and then you got to chapter 11 and now the Gentiles seem to have the upper hand the Jews have um, rejected the gospel so the Gentiles now have the gospel and, and they you know and in a way are kind of living it up and so they have to say no 
You have to grow, go about this with humility. So we're not to be conformed to this world. And that's that verse 2, is the world will shape us into its form. That's that idea. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't let the world shape you into its... And man, that comes at us from all angles, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, sometimes I think I, I hear uh, students at school say, oh, we've got Bible class for like every day for 43 minutes and then I have to go to Sunday school and then so it's like man all together they have three hours of the Bible through the 168 hour week when they're getting 83 hours of the world pummeled at them from every direction and it's like oh, I got one more time I have to listen to the Bible I, I think it's the other way around right we are just getting conformed to the world at every around every corner that's why we need to saturate i'm not really good with my hands i, I do like our our uh, pastor in myrtle beach when he was preaching on this i'll never forget it just because maybe it looked funny but he had his bible sitting on his head he put his bible up here and he said i need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind i need to be transformed josh you're a scientist I mean, you are too, Josh, but I'm talking about Grant. <laughs> Transform metamorphosis. Yeah. Remind me who turns to who, because I always get this mixed up when you start talking tadpoles and stuff. <laughs> I guess a caterpillar to a butterfly. Yeah. Not right. that kind of scientist. Yeah, right. You know, that's, that's not right. really you, but you're, you still <laughs> remember right. seventh grade. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the idea. And they're a whole different beast. By the time the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, that's not even, they're not, tadpole doesn't something, doesn't he? Turns into a frog. Yeah, not even the same, right? And so that's the thing. I, I asked Thomas to uh, think about this. I didn't give him very much time. About the transformation 15 months ago here, right? Something. The difference between your thinking now, your whole mindset, Thomas, everything is is different. Could you comment on that? And then Caitlin, I asked her even less time ago, but I, I want to hear from her too on that. And then anybody, I would love to hear of this. These are good testimonies. Uh, and truly was converted with a new mind and a new spirit. 
incredible Thomas and and you have please know to watch your life has just been thrilling for all of us like emotionally thrilling just to see how someone goes like you said from being dead in their transgressions and your sins to alive in Christ there isn't anything better than that and I think as one that you, as the rest of us are being um, transformed by the renewing of our mind it does us so much good to see somebody come to love and know Christ and just become completely different. Not to just pick on completely on the Bailey family, but uh, we were talking uh, in junior Bible um, this week about those in the junior class that have been transformed. There's been a metamorphosis. Someone immediately raised their hand and says, Peter Bailey, and goes on and on and on. I should have texted you Hank it was just it's incredible because there's a change Caitlin tell us what's different I'm trying to be concise but I want to talk briefly about two different transformations so there's one very large transformation that happened when I went from being an unbeliever to a believer and like the renewing of my mind then was this very drastic very obvious to the outside world change but then there's also a continual renewal of my mind that happens now that I'm a believer as God as I'm soaking in God's word, um, my mind is constantly being renewed. And I do want to talk about that in more detail in just a moment. But the, the stark contrast from going from an unbeliever to a believer. So some of the things that I probably held most dearly to that were worldly, feminism, you know, I very much had this concept of if I did get married, my husband was going to fit into my life. He wouldn't ask me to make any sacrifices about my career or anything of that nature. If I had kids, like, I could be a super awesome career woman and a mom. I could do it all. I could have it all, which is what the world tells you you can do. Um, and so my desires were very much for worldly success, for career, for um, praise of man. And 
that was what I wanted. That's what I craved most in life. As I came to North Avenue and I saw um, the way that people were living, this concept of like godly life started to change in my mind from being a prison to being a joyful thing. And I started to see the things that I was chasing after for what they were, which were empty promises that were never going to give me the fulfillment that I was seeking. Um, so that was a big transformation in my mind, was just this concept of like, God puts boundaries on things. He has called women to be mothers and to be um, working in the home, not because he wants them to be miserable slaves to their you know, overbearing husbands, but actually he has designed this beautiful, wonderful family structure um, to protect the woman from the world, to give her a very special purpose in life, um, and to fulfill the calling, which is the best thing you can do, right? God, everything about God is good and perfect and wonderful, and so when we seek the things of God, um, we can't help but to be happy is not a good word for that, but like, when we seek the things of God, we are fulfilled in a way that the world cannot. Um, so that was one of the biggest transformations of my mind, going from an unbeliever to a believer, is seeing the things of God not as, um, you know, overbearing rules, but as a beautiful protection from my Heavenly Father for my good and His glory. And then, very briefly, the continual transformation of my mind as I am now a believer and get to spend time in God's precious Word. Uh, I really liked what you said about the students, you know, the short period of time they spend in the Bible, like, oh man, that's so hard. But when you think about we are at war with the world, we are at war with the ideas of the world, and if you spend 10 minutes in the work and that's all you have, you're going into battle on like a crumb of bread. Yeah. And how could you expect to fare well in that fight on no sustenance? Yeah. And so... Um, Continuing to have your mind renewed by the word so that you can not put on the things of the world, so you can better be obedient to God. Mm. Um, that's my two cents on the matter. So good. This book of the law should not depart from our mouth, but we would meditate therein day and night and observe to do according to all that's written therein. Then we'll have prosperous and good success. Well, that's well put, Caitlin. You just think about how, and go back in chapter 2 to chapter 6. Um, this is what we are now um, free to do. Um, if you think about these just incredible um, 13, 16, 19. And I like the way you're, you're, you've taken us, Caitlin, from justification where there is a dramatic, where we went from being dead in our sins to alive in Christ. Look at now in sanctification what we are urged to do. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make it obey your, uh, its passions, okay? We're talking about the bodies here now, what we're to do. Remember, we were bought at a price, therefore, we're going to honor God with our own. Well, you're not your own. First Corinthians 6, you're not your own. You're bought at a price, therefore, you honor God with your body. And that's what we are now free to do and urged to do in, um, in Romans 6.16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either the one that leads to death, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. This is what we are urged to do. Verse 19, 
I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members, this is your body here, presented your members as slaves to impurity, just like um, Thomas was talking about, slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And that's what we have the opportunity to do. I think Caitlin's exactly right. If we're just spending a minute or two in the Bible, we're going to get pummeled by the world day in and day out, right? Because it is a fight, um, and I think we all realize that. But this is what we're to renew our mind, be transformed by the renewing our mind, meditating on the Word day and night. And that's what we're to become is saturated um, with the Word of God so that we can present our members to God and not let the world squeeze us um, into that mold the transformed and renewed mind, one commentator said, is, set, is one saturated and controlled by the Word of God. We would love our minds to be such that even our involuntary thoughts become godly. Our, even our involuntary thoughts. And that's what we can do as we flood it with God's Word. It's the mind that spins, and I love this, and this was convicting to me. Our mind, we would want to be that that spends as little time as possible, even with the necessary things of earthly living, and as much time as possible with the things of God, set on things above and uh, not on earthly things. So verse 3 then, For by this grace given me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than we ought. And that is our temptation. And certainly, if we're back in our old self, and, and Thomas, you said it well, is that we're just, we're just self-centered. We come out of the womb like that. We are all about us. And so it is a battle, but it is a battle that we can win to have a sober judgment. And, and Josh, help us even in counseling. This has got to be um, a huge thing to have a sober judgment about our own sin, and not always to think more highly of ourselves than we ought before Grant gets us on four and five here. Yeah, I think that's like the human condition. We, we want to, and we naturally elevate ourselves to a place of higher you know, supremacy, value, worth, and what is biblically accurate. I think really when you think about these couple verses, the verse 2, not being conformed to the world, being transformed by the renewal of the mind, not thinking too high than we ought, is how we are presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. We, we do that by not conforming to the world, its practices, its ways, and the world is so taken with the self, the me and the gratification of my desires. One pastor said, um, the, the way of the world, you could almost flip verse 36 from chapter 11, which says, For from him and through him and to him are all things, talking about God. The world would say, For from man and through man and to man are all things. And that's how we conduct our, our lives. That's how a sinful uh, world, a godless world, conducts their life. And that's the, the, the mold that is constantly we're mm -hmm. trying to be pressed into, that the world is trying to press us into that mold and... You know, live for the here, live for the now, accumulate as much material abundance and blessing as we can, and live for pleasure and gratification. And don't remember that your citizenship is in heaven. Don't remember that 
your life is not just you only live once, but we're going to die once and then live on on another life for all of eternity. And uh, the world is constantly trying, I think, almost just like background noise to press us into this thinking that the world revolves around man, revolves around the self. And um, we constantly, I think, have to be renewing our mind with Scripture and what's truly true, what's really going on with God really um, being in charge of all human affairs and in throughout all human history, and uh, we can't forget that. Yeah, it's huge. Well, Grant, and then verse four to eight, and uh, and we can definitely um, continue on this next week. Don't be in a hurry here to yeah. take us because it's so vital. Maybe I can. Uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but going on worldly possessions, money and such, uh, that reminds me, there's a board game called Life, and honestly, I do not like that board game, because it makes it seem that life is all about money. (laughs) It isn't. There's more to life than money. Humans invented money. (coughs) It's good. Yeah. That we will not let you be the advertiser, Jesse, for a life game to sell it. But that you're exactly right. Whoever ends up with the most money wins, and that's not its not the biblical way to do things. Plus, I'm kind of tired of playing that game anyway, so I'm going to tell Mags your assessment on that and maybe yeah, so move on to something else. Let me just sort of comment before we go on with some of the stuff you're saying. just want to make sure that we have a... Um, for me, it's helpful to have sort of definitions, like what does it mean to renew your mind? Um, and, and y'all have hit on it, but just to put it um, the way R.C. Sproul did, I thought was very helpful. He said, the key method Paul underscores as the means to, be trans- to have a transformed life is by the renewal of the mind. This means nothing more and nothing less than education, serious education, in-depth education, disciplined education in the things of God. It calls for a mastery of the Word of God. We need to be people whose lives have changed because our minds have changed. And he says it this way, continued, God gives us the revelation of sacred scripture in order for us to have our minds changed so we begin to think like Jesus. Sanctification and spiritual growth are all about this. If you just have it in your mind and you don't have it in your heart, you don't have it. But if you can't have it in your heart without first... But if you don't have it in your heart... Sorry, I can't read. But you can't have it in your heart without first having it in your mind. We want to have a mind informed by the Word of God. So it would be total and deep education, as much as we can get in this life with the Word of God, to be able to think like Jesus. And what does it mean to think like Jesus? That would mean studying something like the book of Proverbs. That's one thing that we took in Bro Bible. We're doing Proverbs and Romans. Christ's mind would have all of the wisdom of Proverbs encompassed and all of the understanding of the Gospels encompassed, and he lived that way. It would be like that, as deep of an understanding as we can have so that we can be the most useful uh, Christians that we can be in this world. And, and an example of that, before we get into it, Mark always uses this one of, of a transformed mind, would be um, we see it in, in um, justification, and then it continues on, but Mark uses, I, I think he's getting at like our humor, how our humor will change. Before, um, when, when I wasn't a Christian, so you can read it this way from Ephesians 4.17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Darkened in mind, the opposite of having 
a, re a renewed mind. And you can see it in humor, the things that you found funny. Uh, we live in the age of entertainment. So the TV shows that we watched and the things that we found funny before becoming a Christian, and then afterwards you see it was just uh, sexual perversion, usually. That's the humor of today is just jokes about sexual perversity. And it's, it's not just that it's like, oh, we don't need to find those things funny anymore, but as you become a Christian, you say, that's... It's just not even funny. It's um, it's terrible, and that's that complete change, and it continues with so many other areas of life. You could just humor as an example, but as we are continually renewing our mind in Scripture, we think like Christ, and that just changes our total being. Based on how we think, we will act and do things and react to things uh, and deal with in relationships differently to our family, uh, our coworkers, our children the state, all these things that Josh highlighted, that's what we want to be. We want to interact with these things like Christ. Um, but to continue on, how should we then live in light of God's mercy is the overarching question for this section, I think. And Paul gets into these lists of gifts because uh, God's mercy doesn't stop at salvation, but he gives us gifts so that we can be useful and have purpose in this life. Um, starting in verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and, uh, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that defer according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our service, serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal or diligence, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So we see this list of giftings um, for those that are now in Christ and who are renewing our minds and being transformed. We have these gifts from God, and the gifts are addressed a lot in the New Testament. They're brought up in Romans 12, which is where we are today, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, and Peter names two gifts, or basically two categories of gifts, uh, many gifts falling into those two categories. 1 Corinthians lists 15, and one commentator said it this way, since no two lists are identical, we take them, take them to be illustrative, not exhaustive. So this is not the exhaustive list of Christian gifts, and if you don't have one of these, you don't have a gifting. There's a wide variety of gifting, and we probably all have a mixture of, of different ones. And so the question would then be, what do we do with these giftings? What are they for? Um, and I think Paul's uh, overriding theme in Romans 12, 6 through 8, is that we are not to exercise our spiritual gifts half-heartedly, but we must diligently and enthusiastically serve God and his people with our gifts. We do not all have the same gifts, but we have all received the same grace in Christ. According to this grace, the Spirit gives us as he wills. We must not envy those who have, who have different gifts than we do. Rather, we must use the gifts we have to bless other people. Um, and the giftings are individual, but they're also corporate. We're used to individual things uh, in this age where everything is about us and what we're contributing, what we're doing, what we're building. Uh, and the gifts are, in a lot of ways, very individualistic. Everybody's got their own unique uh, flavor and mixture of gifts that are given by the Lord, but they're corporate in what they should be used for. They're for the church. They're for building up the church. They're not for our own kingdoms, our own uh, egos to be building up. And I think 
the emphasis of the gifting is using them to bring glory to God in the service of others. I think temptation comes in when we use the gifting to build our own kingdoms. We grow jealous or envious of others if they encroach on our gifting and are better at it. We could grow envious of someone whose gifting in our eyes seems to be give them more prominence. We could become proud, which is what I think he's talking about here. We, we should have sober thinking because we can become proud uh, when we think our gifting is the best and better than all others. Um, and I think an example of this we could see, so if we think of uh, a pastor or a preacher at the front, and sometimes we think that somehow they're preferred and primary over, say, another man in the congregation that meets with and strengthens and builds up the young men of the church. One is public, one is private. One takes place, one takes one kind of skill, the other takes another type of skill, but they both build the kingdom of God powerfully, and I would say that they are both uh, intertwined and they rely on one another. So we are one body is one thing that Paul's talking about. So the gifts are not primarily for our upbuilding, but the upbuilding of the church and the body, which is one. Um, and you've probably encountered this when working together with a group or at a job. You want the best people doing their jobs. Um, we have all worked with people who don't care about the end goal. They just simply want the best job in the process. They want to take the easiest or the most prominent job, regardless of whether it makes uh, the end goal work the best or not. <clears throat> and we have also worked with people who will do whatever it takes, uh, and they'll do it the best that they can to make sure the end goal is accomplished. And it's like night and day working with those two different people. One, they don't care if they have the most prominent job, if it brings them glory, if it's the most fun job or the easy job. They just want to help however they can in the best way that they can. Uh, I think this mindset comes... Uh, from sober thinking of our own abilities, not too low and not too high. We don't want to have false humility, and we don't want to be proud. We want to be truthful when it comes to our giftings and think, how can I best serve uh, and use this thing that God has given me for the benefit of others, not for myself? An example of this, because Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians. I would, I'll just read it, and if we run out of time, just stop me, Mr. Jerry. But uh, <clears throat> relating this to the body, that all of these giftings are meant to accomplish one goal, we're one body, the body of Christ, Christ being our head. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he addresses this starting in verse 14. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And so we see that everybody's going to have their unique gifting to use for the building up of the church. And we all are not going to be a hand. We're all not going to be a foot or an eye. And I think if we tried to function that way, the body would suffer. Uh, a silly example of this would be if you're walking to the kitchen to grab a banana and our foot suddenly wants to be a hand and doesn't want to support the rest of the body anymore and lunges out to replace our hand, we have utter chaos. You may get the banana off the counter, but the whole body falls down. The foot was able to function like a hand for a moment, but, but the body paid for it. Um, that's my silly example because we've been playing with bananas with Caroline this week and she likes to put her foot on them and stuff. So, But it's a, it was a good example for me because that's, that's what we can 
be tempted to do. We see a prominent gifting, and we want it. We want the glory that comes to that, but the primary purpose of the gifting is not for our own glory, but to bring glory to God. So we want to be, um, we want to serve in the most useful capacity that we can, always increasing in competence and renewing our mind and being the most useful that we can be. But the last thing here would be the descriptions of these giftings. Um, we don't have time to go through them, but I think the summary would be do the gift wholeheartedly the best way possible. Um, leaders do it with zeal and diligence. No one likes a lazy or unmotivated, slack-handed, begrudging leader. We all want the guy who is on top of things. Merciful, the best way to be merciful is, to be, is with cheerfulness. Um, it's entirely possible to be merciful begrudgingly. Like, I will help you, but why are you in this state? I told you not to do this, that kind of thing. Uh, we don't want to do it as a project or simply out of duty, but with lots of cheer. It's, the, it's a total, if you have kids, it would be the night and day from an eye roll and, oh, okay, fine, I'll go do it, to like, okay, daddy, yeah, I'll do it, and a smile, and they cheerfully go off and do it. It's, it's night and day. It's completely different. Um, and the same would apply to all the other giftings. Teachers teach in the best way. The one who exhorts, do it in the best way, winsomely and with much zeal. Uh, the idea is that Paul is encouraging us to use our gifting. There is no room here in Paul's mind for someone in the church who only receives from God's people. All are required for the proper functioning and all rely on one another. And this is the idea of Ephesians 4, that, the, that, they, um, that they're equipping the saints for the ministry. Everybody has a role to play. It's not just an audience watching the professionals do it. We're all one body with different members serving in different capacities. That's great. We'll come back to that a little bit next week. 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 to, to finish this. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit. And I love this. And this hopefully is encouraging to us as we leave. Who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So whatever giftedness you have, that was given to you directly by the spirit as he wills. Don't envy anybody else's gift. Cheer them on. Mourn with those who remourn. Uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. We'll get to with that next week. But I think we can have that kind of mindset toward people when we realize that uh, God's the one that gave us these gifts. Good stuff, Grant. Thanks. Let me pray for us. Father, as we head into this week, we pray that um, we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. I pray that we would bathe our mind in Scripture. I pray that even our involuntary thoughts would be godly, that we would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, um, and we would use the gifts that you've given us, that you have directly um, apportioned to us, just as you see fit, that we would not be jealous of anyone else's gift or desire uh, their gifts, but, but the gifts that you've given us, we pray that we would use with great humility and great joy, um, knowing that you are perfect in your gifting. Um, we thank you, Lord, for just great examples of uh, those who have been transformed, and that's each of us. Um, and Lord, we pray that this would be obvious in the, in the lives of others, that we may live this life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as we saw at the end of um, chapter 11, that then you would receive glory um, from our lives um, and from North Avenue. And we're very grateful for uh, the opportunity to live for you today, this week, and we pray that we would faithfully, um, in Jesus' name, amen.